Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. My previous two programs have been talking with people about the broadcasting career and legacy of Uncle Ray, who retired on May the 14th after more than 70 years in broadcasting and after more than 50 years of his late-night pop and nostalgia program, All the Way with Ray. I'll be returning to the voice of Uncle Ray later in the programme because I don't think any tribute can leave out a quick segment of its 1964 interview with the Beatles. But for most of this week's programme, I'm talking with the man who has the job of filling Uncle Ray's shoes, and that's veteran music man Peter King, who you'll know in more recent years from his excellent evening show from 7 till 9. Later in the programme, he'll be telling me about how he met Uncle Ray, how he feels about having the late-night slot, and what he's got planned for his new programme, Pete's Magical Mystery Tour. But first, I return to a chat I had with him a couple of years ago, when he told me about how he first got into radio. I used to... You remember the shirts you could buy with the, with the sort of clear plastic front? So when I was about three years old, I used to pretend to read the news behind this little box. Then the next thing was um, using a baby alarm to make my family listen to me broadcasting out of my bedroom. But my first show, believe it or not, was in 1971. I was 15 and a half. And I went to RAF Hereford as, a, as an apprentice, and, and that's where I started my first show. <laughs> I was known as Pete of A-Flight, believe it or not. My theme tune was 633 Squadron by Ron Goodwin. you to radio? I don't really know because I'm not an outgoing person I'm actually quite a shy person, I've got a very small group of friends but they're all good friends you know I love the community spirit of Sai Kung for example, so I don't really know what got me into radio, I love music, I come from a music family, but why I chose radio I really don't know, I did love pirate radio and of course now we're in an era where radio's, I wouldn't say it's past its prime, that's not true, but radio had a great peak sort of in the 60s and 70s and then the 80s and 90s so it's tail off to other means of technology now which is what we have and when you first start off in hong kong who was that with well i first came to hong kong with rthk but i actually came with a company called juliana's to work as the head dj for a place called hot gossip on canton road and they said oh you know the the management there was heinz and barbara group they're terrible people you'll probably stay there for a month if you're lucky by which time i'll find you somewhere else to go this is out of singapore as it turned out i stayed a year with hot gossip and then was doing the overnights here when tony baines used to be head of Radio 3 back in the day, and Alan Murphy, and people like that. So what year are we talking? We're talking 85. What did the Overnights involve? The Overnights was a great training ground for new presenters, I think, and I, I still reckon it is a great idea to put, you know, young people particularly, because you can get away with certain things. I used to do, if I remember correctly, it was two till six, and you basically played music the weather came off a teleprinter you made up a few stories and away you went and of course back in those days english radio was a lot more popular so you actually you actually had a good listenership uh, overnight so you can make all the mistakes that you probably couldn't get away with in the morning <laughs> so and so when you say overnight shift you were on for several hours yeah it was uh, it was two till six and then if i'm not mistaken i think weekends were two till seven 
and uh, at 7 o'clock the BBC World News came on and then Radio 3 and Radio 4 used to split and back in those days, Sunday morning on Radio 4 was Ken Scott who was then head of English Radio and we're going back 85, sort of 86 time And what did Ken Scott do? It's interesting you ask that question because back in, in those days accents were you know, were fairly neutral I would say and, and coming from Derbyshire Ken Scott called me into his office one day. He said, "You know, my boy, he said, if you want to improve your voice, don't say public, say public around your use." <laughs> and it was all really that, you know. And back in those days, of course, being from Derbyshire, which is where I am originally, um, I was constantly monitoring myself uh, to, to try and improve my accent-like. <laughs> <laughs> so you did the overnight shifts. Mm. You would then go on to work for British Forces Radio, BFBS. I did, but that was a, that was a bit of a way down the road. And I went to, to Cyprus and then the Falklands and then Singapore and then eventually back here in uh, 95. The Falklands? Yeah, I've done the Falklands. It was down there, not during the war, of course, but uh, again, a fascinating experience. Uh, British Forces Radio have this system and in fact I, when I came back here in 95 it was to work for BFBS I was doing the breakfast show uh, and doing the news at night so you could be two different people because RTHK thought that the audience on BFBS didn't listen to the you know footy duddies on Radio 3 so it was, it was really good fun <laughs> <laughs> what was funny about that <laughs> so um, with B BFBS mm. you, you did the um, breakfast show so what did mm. that involve Breakfast show, uh, that was six till nine. Just basically happy-go-lucky stuff. I interviewed some great people over the time, uh, everybody from Kevin Bloody Wilson from Australia to uh, to Hammond Innes and, and people like that who were passing through town. It really involved very much a sort of army forces family kind of presentation. And if we let the old expletive slip out and a member of the public uh, complained then BFBS would turn around and say well it's actually not for you you not you know this is for the armed forces so if you listen you're just a guest so you know whatever you say doesn't count and that's how BFBS got through and got away with what they did it was a great station to work for actually and that all then would so you were involved really in in producing or, or presenting programs on BFBS right up until the handover in 1997 in fact that's true because uh, what happened was was that as they were closing things down they had the main base at, uh, at or what was RAF Kong, and I did the last uh, live show from there, it was a Sunday morning, I went in and it looked the same as it always did and it came out, it looked like the movies had come and taken this huge sort of theatrical stage away and then when 97 came what happened was we had to record the last uh, show because that was going to be broadcast from London because they were obviously stripping everything down. By this time we were all at Tamar uh, and they had w what they used to call a pod, it was basically a big container and they've got a few of these things, they can stick them on a C-130 Hercules, send it around the world, drop it off somewhere, it contains a studio, record library, uh, transmitter and, uh, and a transmitter tower and a generator. So you've got an entire radio station in a container <laughs> and, uh, and so consequently the, the Sunday morning was the last one, uh, the last live show which I did there and of course as we know, you know, um, I think it was a Tuesday, 97, 30th of June was a Tuesday. But anyway, whatever it was, I was um, actually in the Swagman Hotel in Manila listening to the handover and watching it on the telly. Uh, so I actually got the 30th of June stamp on my passport just to get out. <laughs> That's you with British Forces Radio. Mm. Then do you return to RTHK? Well, I was doing British Forces breakfast show, then I was doing the, the evening uh, news shift. And then I left uh, 97 
I went to Portugalera, lived there for a while, went back to the UK eventually, which was around November of that year. Got a great job at a, a radio station called Radio 106, which became Century 106, big regional radio station. But to be honest with you, away from the UK, it was like having a colour telly for 16 years and going back and being given a black and white one. I can't really explain it. I don't want to be a UK knocker as such, but my hometown, a very uh, depressed town in Derbyshire, did a lot of reminiscing, bought a car, went did a lot of walks, me and my dad did in Derbyshire and stuff like that. But there was nothing there. I sold up, went to live in Portugalera for a year and a half and I came back here in mid-2000. How do you feel when you're in the studio? I feel that it's a totally different world. Whatever happens outside the studio does not come into the studio it's a it's a very hard thing to explain and because of that because i'm so focused on what's going on you know i do tend to i might sound a little bit calm on the radio but behind the scenes if things are falling apart you know i can actually fall apart with them to be honest but a microphone goes on and you wouldn't even know what's going on to be yes. honest with you now i can uh, i can uh, understand that and that's certainly how you sound now while i've been looking through the archives for this series i came mm. across an excellent uh, series you did for a few years called scrapbook oh yeah the, the hong kong scrapbook that was a story in itself, really. Uh, I can't remember who started it. I think Keith J started it off, and Keith got a little bored with it after a while. We had a lady here called Susan Kay, and she used to go down to the South China, and she used to write down uh, local events uh, on a certain day, a certain year. And, and so basically the Hong Kong scrapbook was about a month of a certain year. So it could be June, for example, of June of uh, 68 or whatever. Uh, but the interesting thing about that was that unbeknown to a lot of people in the record libraries it then was on top of all the shelves are all these cardboard boxes full of all this archive material things like the year enders uh, things like uh, charles wetherill swimming the harbor for charity the riots of course and various uh, people reporting on the riots from down there and all this material was just there it was just a matter of sitting down and working out what the dates were uh, which was an incredibly difficult job so a one-hour show could easily be five or six hours just putting the material together i'm surprised they still got them in the library actually had my voice broken then i can't remember <laughs> now tell me about charles weatherall jeffrey bonsell was his real name he if i remember correctly was a was a professor i think but he worked on radio 4 as as charles weatherall lovely old guy yeah i knew jeffrey bonsell um i didn't know charles weatherall and it's interesting that he had this different name for broadcasting well he did and in fact um one or two other people were known by different names, particularly part-timers. Uh, if you look at some of the old school back in those days, I mean, Ralph Pigston, for example, you know, was, was massive here. Uh, people like myself and Steve James and one or two others, we still do Ralph Pigston. <laughs> um, <clears throat> hey, well, thank you for calling, you know, and the ghost of Ralph is still in this building, actually, it really is. When you uh, you, you start off with the, the overnight shift to sort of mm. cut your teeth a bit, but um, what sort of evening shows have you had? I know you in more recent years right. with, the, with your seven to nine slot. Sure, sure. Well, I've been through, done everything, actually. I, I've done Hong Kong Today. I did Hong Kong Today for about two months. Um, I think I've done every show, quite honestly, <laughs> at some point. Phil Whelan's show, that used to be nine till one, to get over from Keith. Then Steve James and I did our Pete and Steve thing. That started off in the mornings, went off into the afternoons. I don't even know how we got away with most of what we did, to be honest with you. I've done the afternoons as well, three to six. Uh, I think Newswrap, actually, is the only show I haven't done, the one that you do, <laughs> funnily enough. <laughs> but yeah, that's true, I haven't done Newswrap. It's the only one I haven't done. Now, what, you have various things, like Pete's private collection. Yeah. 
is, is Pete's something or the Pete's private collection, Pete's Quiet Night in, Pete's Christmas collection or whatever. And then when I did the lunchtime show, which is what Noreen does now, the one to three show, it was Pete's packed lunch. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, with Pete's private collection, I mean, what do you think is the key to, you know, making the listener feel that they're personally listening to you? Well, it's an interesting show because there's plenty of me between Monday to Friday, and I, as I call it, it's the only show on the radio that lets the music do the talking. In this day and age, if you want to know music and you sound hound or shazam, you point it to the speaker and it will tell you what it is. Uh, and of course you could have me doing that for you as well but I like to let the music on this one hour show I like to let it develop and go into different genres and different styles and I feel that if you preempt the music by telling people oh it's jazz and they say oh I don't like jazz but if you play them a piece of music and then you tell them it's jazz then they realize that they just into a piece of music they like but they thought they didn't like the genre so I like to let music stand up for itself in that show yeah you mentioned that you interviewed Hammond Innes, um, so the, the author, he wrote thrillers. He did. Uh, in actual fact, I, I told little Porky Pie there, I actually interviewed Hammond Innes in the Falklands. He'd come down to research a book uh, back in 1990. Uh, but if you go through the list of people I've interviewed, uh, everybody from Lee Kuan Yew to over oh, the years you know, oh. in Singapore, uh, Margot Hemingway, who had a, a huge impact on me at the time, uh, a whole bunch of people, David Soule, Julia Nixon, who was his wife at the time, uh, all kinds of people. And I love interviews because you can get the best out of people, whether they're selling their book or they're selling a recipe or whatever it is, they're always selling something if you're doing an interview, generally speaking. Um, and I just love to see that side of people and get that side of people out to an audience. If you have a certain empathy, to the people you're interviewing, I believe that carries over. And I think that the first thing an interviewee has to do is to trust you. So that was Peter King and I talking down in the studio a little while back. After Uncle Ray retired on May the 14th, Peter King was named as Uncle Ray's successor, moving from his previous programme time of 7 till 9 to his new slot of 10 till 1am with Pete's Magical Mystery Tour, which we'll hear more about in a moment. So we had another chat this week and I asked Pete to tell me when he first met Ray Cadero. Wow, when did I first meet Ray? I can tell you it was September of 1985 when I first came to Radio 3. And I first did his show, would you believe, in December that year. He may have been taking it off for his birthday or something. Uh, and he was very kind to me. Obviously, you know, we'd no known each other from a bar of soap. And he said, look, do you want to play my music or do you want to play your own music? And I said, well, Ray, it's your show. I'd like to play your music. So he took me into the record library when back in those days was all on disc, vinyl discs, of course, and he each section was written down as to the record label name. So the Ireland label was ISL, RCA was obviously RCA, and Capital was CAP. So he took me to the Capital label and he pulled out a few samplers uh, from that label. And back in those days, it included names like, I think, Frank Sinatra was on there, Dean Martin, Nancy Wilson, and a few others besides. And he said, look, he said, just play a track from each of these albums, because we had record decks in those days. He said, you'll be fine. That's more or less what I did. <laughs> Yo 
pizza pie that's amore When the world seems to shine like you've had too much wine that's amore Bells will ring, tingle-ling-a-ling, tingle-ling-a-ling And you'll sing Vita Bella Hearts will play tippy-tippy-tay, tippy-tippy-tay Like a guitar and Something that's interesting, Anne-Marie, is that people think I have a young voice, so they think, how can you possibly know about 40s and 50s music? Well, to be honest with you, first, I was born 10 years after the Second World War. They always say that you grow up with what your parents listen to. That's taking us back into the 30s, more or less. And that is probably just how it was. My dad had a wind-up gramophone. I remember that when I was very young. Used to sit with pride of place on the table. It was a massive piece of furniture with a handle on the side. You lifted the lid up, and the two little doors at the front, which were kind of like very primitive uh, volume controls. Anyway, so my dad sort of moved up. He evolved to a radiogram, pride of place in the uh, in the front room, as it was called. Uh, and he gave me his 78 RPM records because I had a Chad Valley uh, little uh, record player. It ran on batteries and played 78 RPM tracks, which is exactly what happened. But uh, I didn't have a gramophone and he wouldn't give me the big one because it was a huge piece of kit. So I actually went to a jumble sale and I found one. And would you believe one of the first records that he gave me, 78 RPM on the old black and gold Brunswick label, was Bing Crosby's Swinging on a Star. Would you like to swing on a star, carry moonbeams home in a jar, and be better off than you are? Or would you rather be a mule? A mule is an animal with long, funny ears, kicks up at anything he hears. His back is brawny, but his brain is weak. He's just plain stupid with a stubborn streak. And by the way, if you hate to go to school, you may grow up to be a mule. Or would you like to swing on a star? Carry so as you can tell, you know, my music knowledge goes back way to where Ray started off with his music and I can play it with a lot of confidence and experience as well. Another one he gave me, I might add, was the uh, Ronald Binge composition, uh, An Elizabethan Serenade by Ron Goodwin and his orchestra. It was out on the Red Regal Zonophone label. <laughs> side was Red Cloak, which my dad hated for some reason. But that's 
really where I started my music collection. And since then, I've fallen in love with music through the 60s and the 70s, obviously through the 80s up until today. Some of my favourites, well, one of them would definitely be Telstar. And the reason I can say that is because when they first started this transatlantic broadcast with the Telstar satellite, I and my family, we went to my grandma's house in Nottingham very late at night to watch the first pictures come over. They had a rediffusion TV set. And I can remember we're all sitting there in practical darkness just watching for these first pictures coming across from America. So Telstar by the Tornadoes was one of my early favourites. for Ray's show and by the way I'll just tell you that I'm so honoured that we've come from 1985 to Ray being 96 I've known him for over half of my life uh, Ray's known me for about a third of his and to actually do this format to do it at night is, an, is a massive honour for me and I can tell you that his format is beautiful as well I've listened to a lot of his after midnight stuff in particular so the first hour is definitely going to be up tempo it will still be 70s and 60s fairly easy going on a Monday if you listen to the 7 to 9 you know that we started easy on a Monday and then it was a fairly manic edge of the weekend collection on Friday it won't be as bad as that or as good as that depending on which way you look at it but it certainly will be up tempo by the time we reach Friday so that's the first hour Second hour, we've only got 45 minutes, so after the news at 11.15, it's going to be fairly easy going, maybe something from the 70s or the 60s, but as we make our way through that 45 minutes, heading towards our sentimental journey, the music will be tailored more towards the 50s and 40s, a little bit of big band as well as we head to midnight. Then after that, it's our sentimental journey, and that's the one format of race I definitely don't want to change. I think there's a great market for it now. I think a lot of young people as well are getting a little bit fed up with this uh, materialistic sexual explicit angry people talking at your music which is mostly computer driven also taking samples from the past to give it some sort of credibility so they're also moving over and I want to give a little bit of education it's going to be discovery for these young people rediscovery of course for people who know and love this kind of music that last hour sentimental journey will be no exception I think it's actually two hours rolled into one to be honest with you because if it was midnight to two for example then I'd play a lot more big band uh, between midnight and one and then the crooners would come out from 1 to 2 a.m. So that would be the ideal plan. But as it stands at the moment, it is Pete's Magical Mystery Tour, and anybody who wants to get involved in it can do by all means. You can either email me at radiopete at gmail, or from uh, Monday we'll be having a WhatsApp where you can even record your own message. If you want to say hi to a friend of yours, you can record it, and I'll play it out over the radio and play you a song. It'll be a real pleasure to hear from you. So how does Peter King feel about the big man listening in? 
Well, I do, <laughs> I do know Ray listens in because uh, he's told me that he's listened. He listened in uh, the first uh, two nights and was very happy with what I was doing. And that is important to me. You know, I love Ray. We all love Ray. He will be a legend forever and ever. And one thing I will add is that Ray, without him, you would not have had such a vibrant English music scene here in Hong Kong in the 60s and 70s. There's some beautiful pieces out there. I played a lot of them already. Some great names. Betty Chung springs to mind. Teresa Carpio. What a beautiful voice. Mona Fong, of course. Likes of Danny Chan also sang a few songs in English, as well as uh, Sam Hoy, of course, Joe Jr., and a whole rake of them. So one thing I will promise you, there will be a lot of local music on the show. That is no doubt about it. My thanks to Peter King, who you can hear on Pete's Magical Mystery Tour from 10pm until 1am on weekday nights. And now to end the show, a little bit of Uncle Ray telling me on his 60th anniversary in broadcasting, so just over 10 years ago, about him famously meeting the Beatles three times in one week in 1964, twice in London and then again in Hong Kong. In 1964, you went to England and uh, you actually met the Beatles three times in one week. How did that happen? Well, it was like this. I went to, to London, uh, sent by the Hong Kong uh, government, uh, uh, RHK, for so a radio, course. Radio Hong Kong. Radio Hong Kong, for a course uh, in, at the BBC for three months. So I went, and uh, after my three months, I had two weeks of free time and I didn't know what to do. So I went up to EMI and I said I wanted to do some interviews uh, to take back with me to Hong Kong. And this fellow called Stan Stern, uh, a very nice gentleman, he said, well, what can I do for you? I said, well, I want to take, uh, do some interviews and take them back with me to Hong Kong. He said, well, who would you like? I said, well, at the top of my list, of course, the Beatles. He just picked up the phone and he called up Brian Epstein, you know, just like two old friends. Say, Brian, I've got somebody here from Hong Kong, a young boy from Hong Kong who wanted to interview the Beatles. Uh, what's happening? He said, well, Brian said, perfect timing. He said, we have a press conference tomorrow afternoon, just send him along. So that was it. Now, what did they have to say to you when they found that you were from Hong Kong? Uh, yeah, well, that was the second time. On the following day, I found out that they have another press conference for... Uh, foreign uh, correspondents only. I said, well, hell, I, I'm from Hong Kong, I'm, I'm foreign, so I <laughs> went up again. Do you have any ambition uh, in life now that you've made top? Uh, no, nothing special. Just keep going, you know, none of them worrying what's going to happen tomorrow, just keep going. Well, finally, Ringo, before I, I go off to uh, Paul, um, do you have a message for your many fans in Hong Kong? Um, well, I can't wait to come over there and see you all. And keep swinging. And that's about it then, isn't it? Yes, well, the best of luck to you, uh, Ringo, and uh, hope to see you. Thank you very much, Ray. It is right, isn't it? <laughs> Hello, ladies and gentlemen, in Hong Kong. What about Can't boys wait and to girls? Get there. Oh, well, that's, that's, that's boys and girls. Boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, 
Well, I can sit here all day and tell you about Hong Kong, but I, I'd like to hear more from you. Have you heard of Hong Kong? Or I've heard of it, but I'm very bad at geography, you see, so uh, I, I reckon it's in China, isn't it? Just sort of well, it's just on the, on the shores of China, really, on British colony. Oh, good. And, uh, oh, good. Well, uh, yeah, no, I've been... Actually, the funny thing was, I, we got some uh, magazines from Hong Kong, you know, we were reading them. The only thing is, you've got to read them backwards, haven't you? Well, if you read the Chinese characters, maybe. <laughs> they, they were in Chinese characters. Oh, it is. And the ones I read, you have to read them backwards. Because we thought, well, we're on the back of this magazine. We thought we were on the back cover, but in fact oh, it was the front cover. Yeah. <laughs> so that's my second interview with the Beatles. Then the third time was at Kaitak when they arrived. I was there again. So when they arrived in Hong Kong at the airport of Kaitak? Oh, yeah. It, it, I, I, uh, well, it was my, my usual, you know... Uh, uh, present there and of course I met Paul again and, and John and Ringo and there were hundreds of uh, teenagers uh, right across the, the tarmac right at the, the balcony screaming their heads out but they couldn't come near the Beatles and I was there next to them <laughs> so I was really very lucky The legendary Ray Cadero on meeting the Beatles Happy retirement sir Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage <laughs>